There is a smoking gun or a mushroom cloud. Simply we have stated, waited too long. There is no doubt that Saddam Hussein now has weapons of mass destruction. Got to get rid of this dictator. He's got anthrax. He's got all these weapons. There is no not... doubt he is amassing them to use them against our friends, against our allies, and against us. When and not if, but when Saddam creates and uses nuclear weapons, what will we tell the American people? Saddam Hussein will continue to increase his capacity to wage biological and chemical warfare. Hello? Justifying the war in Iraq, that was Mike Pence, Bill O'Reilly, Jeff Sessions and Hillary Clinton all playing themselves and Christian Bale playing Dick Cheney in 2018's Vice. Iraq was a catastrophe built on an ocean of deceit. Fresh off the Leeds Film Festival, we discuss a film all about the origins of one of the most prominent lies, Curveball, a true story, unfortunately. That's the full title, by the way, not a comment. Yes. Plus, that belongs in a museum. So do you! Bullwhip and fedora at the ready. Let's hope we can choose wisely in this week's What Have You Been Watching? We don't know what we're doing. We're just talking about films. I'm Sam. And I'm Lawrence. 3,000 innocent people burned to death by those monsters. And yet you object when I refuse to kiss those monsters on the cheek and say pretty please. You answer me this, what terrorist attack would you have let go forward so you wouldn't seem like a mean and nasty fella? I will not apologize for keeping your family safe. And I will not apologize for doing what needed to be done. So, Sam, this week, what have you been watching? Well, we both sat down to watch an old classic, which was uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yeah! Um, I think that was partly to do with the, the death of Sean Connery. Um, it was, yeah. It's funny because Connery is is uh, obviously always going to be most famous for Bond. But I think the la- despite being a Bond fan, The Last Crusade probably does trump for me any Connery Bonds and he's got a he, he's he's got a career where there's also these like other uh, that there, there are like plenty of other things he's done that people also remember him for. He's not just a, a one trick pony, but yeah, definitely Last Crusade is like my favourite thing that he was in. So it, it seemed uh, appropriate to watch that. Uh, well, maybe Zardos, Zardos <laughs> the Untouchables as well, but uh, I haven't seen that actually. Uh, the Untouchables isn't very good. Yeah. You don't need to watch that. But Zardos is amazing. But anyway, yeah. that's what, that's where all whole of it. We need a, a, a couple of podcasts to cover Zardos. Yeah, but the Last Crusade is um, is actually sort of one of his more comedic turns. Yeah, um, it I is. don't think he did many off the top of my head. But um, <laughs> no, he wasn't an overtly funny actor. Yeah, well, it's difficult to come up with new new takes on the Last Crusade because people have talked about it to death. You think of it as an adventure film, a family film, you know, just in the build up to Christmas. I'm sure it's going to be on TV. It's on Amazon Prime actually, so people can just watch it on demand when they like. You call this archaeology? The quest for the Grail is not archaeology. It's a race against evil. Germany has declared war on the Jones boys. Those people are trying to kill us. I know, Dad. It's a new experience for me. Happens to me all the time. Watching it this time round, Last Crusade, I forgot how funny it was. (laughs) That's what, and that's just, I think, a really a sign of just a really fine film. And even though there were sort of comedic parts of the previous two Indiana Jones, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark and Temple of Doom. I don't think they were ever as consistently funny as Last Crusade is. And that's not to like diminish it in any way, because it's still like a great action-adventure film, but the chemistry between like Harrison Ford and Sean Connery is, is so strong. And bringing in that sort of like slightly older figure, who has this obviously bad relationship with, with Indy, it's a new element of the, the franchise, and it's just, it just feels so fresh. And it's one of the things that makes it so wonderful. I mean, it's easily my favourite indie, and... There's so much I kind of love about The Lost Crusade, but at the top of the list is this idea, because what what makes it great as well, it's one of the best sequels ever made, because it takes the framework of what the first couple of films had, and then it ups the ante, and it finds 
um, interesting places to take that archetype in, in this time in, in this case where to take the character Indy and Indy is such a cool and sexy character that putting him in a position where he's got to hang out with the with a person that makes him so uncomfortable and puts him completely out of place and out of his safety zone is just brilliant it's a brilliant idea i think on paper if i read that it it might have you know before making it it would have seemed almost kind of reductive and maybe a a bit of a bad idea but it works out so perfectly and like yeah their chemistry is absolutely amazing i mean but that's part of the magic of indie i think that there's there's lots of there's lots of things that make the indiana jones films or mostly indiana jones films work so well but and there's lots of kind of big ideas there's lots of like planning and real like technical craft work but sometimes a lot of it really is that just the stuff that you can't really plan the charisma the the movie magic and i i think the kind of playfulness between connery and 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 ford in this i think it's almost that they (laughs) maybe they're just both too perfectly grumpy bastards hmm. and they can manage to they, they manage to find a way of really of really like winding one another up in a way that's just like so fun to watch i think again it is about taking indy out of his comfort zone he's no longer the swashbuckling hero he's being told off by his very old-fashioned academic father <laughs> who's who's sort of disproving of his of his ways even when he's succeeding, he still can't do anything right. You know, it's a great like double act. Yeah, it's a perfect it's a, it's a perfect move for the film because and another facet to Indy's character and his his backstory really because yeah, you have this uh, you have this bad relationship between the two, and there is this distance between them. And when they're on the Zeppelin, they talk they talk about this, and Henry is sort of like, oh well, I, I didn't you know I just left you to do your own thing. You seem to turn out all right. I don't know why you're so upset with me. And Ian and Jones are like, well, I never felt. Never felt you loved me in so many words, and then, and it sort of feels like the first time they've actually had this this conversation. Yeah, and then at the end of the, that's obviously so crucial. It's such a great device because at the end of the film, that he has this embrace when he thinks that the indie's like fallen off the cliff, and it just feels like this is the first proper connection they've had. And then obviously when you get to the finale, and Donovan shoots Henry, and then you're kind of like, oh wow, they finally rekindle their relationship. They finally have this sort of father son dynamic. And like and he's Henry, about to he's about and he's about to lose it. It's almost at that point where you care about the the character of Indy the most because it feels like he's got something that's been missing in his life, and now it's about to be taken away. Yeah, that's really great. And I think as well Henry's arc that in the end he gives up his life's work without hesitating. He does so in order to save Indy because he realizes it's more important. He says at the end what he got from the Grail was illumination. And that was illumination of actually yeah, yeah, how yeah. important his relationship with with Indy is. I mean, again, I mean, I think it's a great thing. I mean, again, you want to talk about family films. I mean, it's, it's definitely a father-son relationship that a lot of fathers and sons will recognise. And also a kind of a nice idea about a family that they can, uh, no matter how distant, they can like come back together and rejoin. I think that's like a really nice part of it. And actually, it feels like Marcus Brody is kind of part of that family too. Because yeah. basically, Marcus alludes to the fact that he, you know he 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 knew he knew Henry, and he also saw Indiana growing up. It feels like that Indy has this sort of surrogate father son relationship uh, bet- with with him and and Marcus. And the fact that Marcus goes on this adventure, yeah, like with them, is 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 so so great, really. And then you get, I think, for me, like the funniest part of the film where Indiana is captured by the Nazis and he says oh and they're trying to find Henry's notebook and he said oh well you'll never you'll never find Marcus he speaks five different languages and you know he'll... he's got connections yeah. <laughs> <laughs> from, from here to Timbuktu or something and it cuts to yeah Marcus being completely lost but he meets Salah played by um, uh, John Rhys-Davis from, from Raiders of the Lost Ark and it's just you know it's just a brilliant it's brilliant cut. cut yeah you know a sense of humour is really really important in crafting a, a blockbuster, a great blockbuster. And I'm a firm believer that that blockbusters, uh, you know, big, broad, entertaining, expensive films that are designed to pull in a big crowd are really, really worthwhile. And I think more than anything, like Star Wars and Jaws started 
blockbusters originally. But Indiana Jones really is, I think, the first example of when blockbusters really can go to like further heights. I mean, I don't want to irritate any Star Wars fans, but I'm much more of an Indiana Jones person than I am a Star Wars person. And I think a sense of humour is really important in, in crafting a blockbuster because you always want to keep that sense of adventure. You always want to keep the tone light. You know, you, you can have, you know, death and destruction, but you never want to make it too harrowing. You want to take the audience to a fun place. You want to speak to everyone's inner child or, or just to the, to the children in the audience. And like I say, you can go to dark places and have a body count, but you want to maintain that feeling of 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 lightness of fun and there's, there's nothing better than, than a good sense of humor to to have that but you need a good sense of humor to have that having these like comedy beats throughout it it doesn't mean that you have to make it stupid or goofy or anything like that but it's you, you you've got to keep that right balance you've got to keep that you're going to keep all those different plates spinning in terms of tone yeah and i think you can apply that to um marvel and dc and i'm i'm not a marvel fan but part of the success of that franchise was the humor yeah because actually they it started in iron man and they sort of t- took this sort of slightly snarky yeah sarcastic tone and they and then they put it into the other films and, and it worked really well and Again, I'm not I'm really not a Marvel fan, but they just did that so much better over DC and those DC films. They got stuck in this kind of slightly, slightly overwrought and depressed tone, which which put people off. There and there was yeah. that there was that camp complaint. I think was it when um, Batman versus Superman came out and trailer made it look so dour. And they said, "Well, where's where's the humor that's made made Marvel so so superior?" Really? Yeah, I think. As well, I, I, I'm a really big fan of the idea of just the, the double act, like the buddy-buddy kind of comedy thing. I think all like all the blockbusters that I, I've really like bonded with over the years always have that element. I just think that it's a, the, the idea of the odd couple, although it, it seems like an archetype, I think you, you can still make it really fun to watch today. There's just something about having two heroes on a screen having this friction while they're trying to solve this like grand plot it, it, it's so flexible it works in so many different places and i think like the last crusade is definitely a a, a, a place that does that really really well so like i've kind of seen that more in in things like uh, star trek or sherlock holmes or the man from uncle which is like i, I think i'm like the only person that likes the man from uncle but mm. like you know I, I or mask of zorro i think is something that i always think about and the last crusade was one of the first places i actually saw that uh happen and that like worked really really well oh and not to mention all the buddy cop stuff that i really really love as well that works really well but i just think it's a great like archetype it works so well <laughs> yeah, this time round, I realised how much I love the. Um, he's actually more of a henchman, but in it, the, the the Nazi colonel who's called Vogel, who's played by an actor called Michael Byrne. He's just so brilliant. He's the he's the he's the he's the Nazi that Indy has a fight with on a tank at the at the end of the of the film, and he's just so he just relishes in his supreme cartoonish villainy so well that's how Austrians say goodbye this is how we say goodbye in Germany Dr. Jones he's just so sadistic and and, and nasty and I just think he's the perfect like Indiana Jones Nazi I I, I love that that character what's what what happened actually is is we watched The Last Crusade and then a couple of days later I watched Raiders of the Lost Ark and they are just so similar in their structure and like what actually happens from and in terms of the characters as well and obviously there's Tot the SS officer from Raiders I can be reasonable. That time is past. You don't need that. Uh, uh, wait. Uh, I'll tell you everything. Uh, yes. I know you will. It, he's he's really good because he doesn't have much dialogue, but he has a certain menace to him, and that's mm. the same with Vogel in The Last Crusade. I guess it I guess Vogel's just like a little bit more a little bit more camp. 
Do you think? <laughs> he is. Yeah, like, he is. The way he sort of like, struts around, really. And he there is. is this, yeah, like, he's definitely more cab. There's Pop's this more menacing. He's more like slinking and like nasty. Vogel's just like, yeah, camp. Kind There's this, like, yeah, this acerbic quality to it. Yeah. If you're looking for the parts that make a great indie film, then that type of Nazi, the like the the henchman. Is, is the one that, that works really, really well. But it's all part of what I think makes indie really, really great. I mean, again, like it's, it's this good balancing of tone between a lot of stuff that's really, really thrilling and these really well-crafted like action sequences to like the sense of humour, to the villains being, you know, the Nazis that are these kind of completely irredeemable. They're, 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 they're you know, their rigidity and their sadistic cruelty and, and everything they're brilliant. But then the, the heroes are are either like kind of uh, goofy and fun like uh, Salah or, or Marcus Brody or they're, or they're stalwart and strong like Indy. Uh, but then there's all the kind of the magic, the charisma between all the cast. And then I think like Indy himself is just a great character, like a great hero. You know, he's daring, he's brave, he's flirty, but he's also kind of grumpy and academic and, and he's got those kind of like layers to him. But ultimately he's always able to be kind of humble in the face of great power, rein in his cavalier attitude and do the right thing. And Harrison Ford is just so iconic at that, so brilliant at doing that. I mean, it's... Yeah, I know she didn't really mention in that list the female characters because I think actually watching Last Crusade and then Rose again, it is kind of like... I don't want to get too much into like a woke rant about it, but it is sad to see how like underdeveloped they are and like i think even like a a true indie fan could probably like admit to that i mean like maybe like elsa played by alison doody is like perhaps a bit better than uh, marion and who you know steven spielberg's wife in in temple of doom i I don't i don't i don't know uh, a character's name i don't know but there is this still aggression from indie towards elsa they obviously have that uh, relationship when they're in Venice together, and that sort of scene is started by him like literally grabbing her, and then he's kind of like threatens to beat her up when they get to Berlin later in the film. Well, but she, I don't know. She's, like, a, she's a Nazi that, has, or she's ha- certainly helping the Nazis. Of course, maybe, yeah, yeah. The world. And it probably, you know, it probably matched the attitude of of men to women at the time. So, you know, I, I, there is always the argument whether like blockbusters are the best place for female representation. I mean. You know, well, I, 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 I mean, know. I'd really disagree with that. I mean, I think Marion is a brilliant kind of character. Oh, no. <laughs> no, you're No, really... I don't. I, I don't love Marion. So. I think she's brilliant. She's so, like, tough and independent. She can drink anyone under the, under the table. She's two-fisted and can fight and scheme her way. She can't fight. Anything. She definitely can't fight. All right. Well, maybe not. She's not. She, maybe she's not, like, a, much of a fighter, but she can certainly, like get out of any situation not like completely helpless although alright Indy does need to save her relatively often I always felt yeah like... quite a few times yeah for <laughs> most of the film I always got a kind of a, a feeling that, that Marion was different to a lot of heroines that you'd, you'd see at the time I do agree that there are definitely problematic elements to parts of that character and Indy's relationship with women in in several of the films, but I'd always champion Marion as a bit of a, 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 as a as someone that's like outside of the framework of what like a Bond girl traditionally was or what like a damsel in distress traditionally was. Well, well that's really interesting to say that because actually watching Raiders again, I I think I've come down that Marion's actually not a very good female character. I mean. Watching it, you could almost do like a PhD thesis on her in it because there are so many ways that you could bait. Because and that's really interesting that that you've come away from Raiders or your memory of Marion in Raiders is that she is like a good like female character because yeah. actually for me overall it wasn't. So what happens with her is like so she sort of introduces someone as you say who can compete in a man's world. She sort of wins a, a hard liquor competition. She's also like yeah. very aggressive towards Indy and she basically accuses him of taking advantage of a younger woman and someone who was the daughter of a close friend of Indy. So like she, you're like, you're like actually yeah, Indy like sounds like a bit of a bastard to be honest. Like he's not yeah, he's like someone that probably didn't treat treat her very well. But then she's sort of taken captive by Tot, the SS officer. Then when they go to Egypt, there's this whole sequence dedicated to her capture where she's a bit of a distraction to sort of indie beating people up. Then later on when they go to the dig site, she's damn in stress. She's like, she's tied up. Indy has to save her, then decides not to. Then Belloc, who's like one of the, the villains of the film, he then sort of tries to sexualise her by getting her in a white dress. And Marion embraces that. She's just like, oh, well, yeah, I'll try this on. Yeah, this is like, yeah, the, oh, this beautiful dress that you've given me, that's that's 
that's brilliant. And I guarantee if this was made now, there would be no way she'd be so ecstatic to wear something that like made her more attractive to her captors. But she's she's doing that to try and get out. She's trying to, to get free. Yeah, oh yeah, that's she's, true. She's looking excited because she's trying to get hold of a knife and then plan to drink Bullock under the table that, so then she can make her escape. That's that's an argument you can have. But then later on in the like on the pirate boat when her and Indy escape, she's like, oh, this captain got me this really revealing dress. Oh, that's convenient. I sort of slipped into this and looking all sexy again. And then when she's dropped into the Well of Souls, there's a bit where she gets on Indy's shoulders trying to escape the snakes. And it's like a bit, oh, yeah, because she's a girl and that. And then, like, in the final moment, the, the thing that is so unnecessary is that the final bit where they sexualise her a bit is when the ship is taken by the Nazis. Uh, the captain of the boat pleads with the commander not to take Marion because they can sell her into sexual slavery. Now, this is this is basically done so... Because the captain's on, on Indy and Marion's side. And so he does this as a way of being like, oh, okay, no, we, we need... You know, you never think that it's like, oh, they're actually going to do this. It's like oh, a right. way to try and trick the Nazis. Okay. But it's like, wh- why you why do that? Why, why do that? Why be like, oh, yeah, we can... It just feels like a bit it's of the nineteen thirties, but it was it's and just, like it was a way of it was it was a way of getting someone that he cared about out of danger. But I mean, yeah, like sure. That's how you, but there are other ways you can do that. Surely, I don't understand why you need to be like, oh, well, we can like we can sell her into sexual slavery. That'll do. I think it just it just feels like a way that like slightly weakens her and like I don't know, just sort of like makes her character more about like more that she's female than anything else I don't know it just felt it, just, it feels like too obvious I think there are, just feels like there's ways in Raiders that you can make Marion like a, like a stronger character um, and, but, but there are like there are elements of that like there's a there's a fight in the fight scene when her and Indy are, are trying to escape the dig site she sort of kills all those Nazis in the, the truck she gets in the airplane she gets into like into the, the gunner bit yeah and she sort of like she she kills them it's like oh great again that's her sort of like using her wits all, she's a survivor like she's a survivor yeah exactly but they just for me there's just too much throughout the rest of the film where it's humiliating her i guess i think some of that's a bit overly sensitive i know you left a few stuff in context but i still think she stands up she's fu- yeah. she's, a, she's a world away from the kind of demure beauty queens that used to populate some of the bond franchise that that you know inspired part part of like Indie stuff. All the woman from uh, Temple of Doom. All the woman from. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, like she. Yeah. Look, Temple of Doom is awful, and I'll fight anyone on on that. That is a hill I'm very willing to die on. Temple of Doom is rubbish, and that is one of the the reasons. I I, I agree that there are elements, particularly like <laughs> this suggestion that that Indie took advantage of her when she was younger is really like unnecessary and a bit weird i have no idea why that remained in the script it was really not necessary i think the pirate captain may be trying to match the barbarity of the nazis he thought that was the best way to save her by acting like a savage is not mm. not an indication that there is that, that that's that is not a problematic part of the script I just, I just don't see how. I still don't really see how that is. Yeah, and this, I, I, and this film, like, whether like, there's, there's no way of getting away with it. This film was like made in like 1981, yeah. so yeah, they're probably you know representation of women in obviously in the history of Hollywood has never been very good. It's still not very good. It's not great, but I just think that there's more to Marion. I think she's a bit better than you're giving her credit for. Yeah, I, I do. Yeah. Understand, I that's, do agree. That's fair. That's fair. I agree that there are elements of it that are definitely a bit more uh, that maybe have not uh, stood the test of time. But yeah, overall, just the indie franchise for the most part is just really well executed, really well made. And yeah, at the end of at the end of the Last Crusade, you know, they ride off into the sunset, and that's the way that Spielberg always wanted to end that franchise. Yeah, and um, that is the way that the franchise ended. <laughs> so people all agree. Like, nothing ever happened ever again, and nothing ever will happen again. Oh, thank God there was never a full film to ruin it all. Yeah. yeah. So, this week, we've made good use of the Leeds Film Festival online player, and we watched Curveball, a true story, unfortunately, uh, which is a German film. Sam's going to tell you the plot. The year is 2001, and Dr. Wolf, a German secret service agent, is tasked with interviewing an Iraqi refugee called Rafid, who claims he worked on chemical weapons in Baghdad. Dr. Wolf compiles a report which uses Rafid as a source. However, another BND agent proves Rafid's claims to be false. Dr. Wolf loses his job, but as we approach 2003, and the United States rushes to war in the Middle East, 
The CIA tried to get their hands on Rafid so they can turn his lie into factual evidence. Or, as a haiku, when war is declared, truth is the first casualty. Samuel Johnson. That's a real quote, that is, that happens to also fit with his name into a haiku. Nice. (laughs) Right, uh, and here's a clip. You witnessed an accident with biological material. I see people die. The Iraqi told us about Saddam's secret anthrax factories. Chance for the BND to prove we were a real secret service. They have even given him a code name. Cold Ball. And suddenly, even the CIA was nice to me. You must be uh, quite the celebrity over the BND now. Unfortunately, there was one thing we had missed. So before we start our review of the film, I think we should briefly go over the build-up of the Iraq war just in case not everyone listening is in the know on the sequence of events. So a very basic summary is after 9-11, the war on terror was launched by President George Bush and he invaded Afghanistan in 2001. Due to the growing suspicion that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction and that Saddam had helped Al-Qaeda... Over the months of October 2002 to March 2003, the United States and Allied forces, including the UK, prepared for and then invaded Iraq to overthrow Saddam. So that's kind of, those are the events that were going to be discussed, and that's the timeline in which the film takes place. Oh, the Iraq war. That's a political scandal we haven't thought about in quite a while, I feel. Uh, although, actually, well, there has been some TV stuff and radio stuff about it recently. But it's funny, with everything that's gone on since uh, sort of 2016, it's one of these things that feels like a very, very distant memory. Yeah, they talk about things in 20-year cycles, and I'm not sure that completely fits. And that's in terms of, like, culture and art. And But, yeah, it's approaching 20 years since the start of the war, and there has been much more documentaries made about, um, yeah, about the Iraq War, and now, um, and yeah, now we get a get a feature film about it, or about this interesting segment of yes. it, which I didn't know anything about. It's interesting. Like the the Iraq War is a pretty vivid memory for me, because uh, it's one of the first things I was really politically outraged about. It was one of my first real engagements with uh, politics, or certainly being really kind of impassioned about something to do with politics. It just seems so clearly unjust and stupid and based on vengeance and bullshit and stuff. And I and I, I remember going and protesting it. I think I still have like a, a placard that I picked up from the from the Iraq war protest. But yeah, I, I didn't know anything about this story at all. And so it's a really interesting thing to, to pick up on. Did you know anything about it before going into it? Yeah, I mean, there was a there was a BBC documentary about Iraq, which was sort of a five part series, but that was kind of more about the invasion of Iraq. And we should probably say that this is kind of much more about the information gathering and um, the sources behind the information that was presented to other countries and was a justification from the US and Allied forces for going into war. We're not making it sound particularly sexy. <laughs> It's not a sexy film. Um, I do think it's one that needs concentration and focus. I mean, it's a satire. Yeah. So there I mean, are like th- there are bits of comedy in there um, and absurdism, which we'll sort of get into. Yeah, and I think that is what the the film is trying to do. Maybe it's not a pure farce, but yeah, it's a satire. I mean, the the first thing to note about that is I think it's a very loose interpretation of the facts. The the core facts about Rafid Alwan are absolutely true, but the other characters are. Uh, mostly made up or are composite characters and it's unlikely that everyone interacted in this way for example kind of dr wolf the main character has a has a love affair with uh his opposite number who's with the cia and that's you know unlikely to be true maybe that's the sexier side of it having a little bit of a kind of quasi romance but but that's okay. I, I I I think that's fine because I think making a film like this is is fine because you should get the facts right, but then the drama should best represent what we actually take from the true story. So in this, I mean, it's it's really taking this this thing that happened amongst the the German secret service and using it to show how facts and truth were so flexible 
during the period running up to and during the Iraq war. And that's what the film is is all about. It's about that. There were, there were so many alternative facts rolling around, let's say, to put a modern spin on it. Yeah, and how the truth was manipulated. I think there's, um, there's an idea of blame going around the film as well. It's like, who is really to blame for this? I mean, the reason that Rafid lies is because he wants to get a German passport to get his family out of Iraq. So at the beginning of the film, when they're interrogating him, and they're trying to see if he is actually who he says he is. Who was like, yeah, he worked in a, a biochemical factory in in a Baghdad. Um, but you know, they they're basically just trying to get the like the truth out of him. And in the end, they kind of believe his bullshit. And then obviously, that is done because Doctor Wolf hears from him that there was a way that the the Iraqi secret service was able to hide these like the making of anthrax in Iraq from the inspectors who would check because throughout the 90s basically they were consistently trying to find that if there were any um, yeah ma- weapons of mass destruction within Iraq yeah and the beginning of the film actually starts with Dr. Wolf in Iraq looking he is like one of these inspectors so yeah they're they're basically just trying to get this information out of him but Rafi only says he'll do it until he gets this this German passport um, and then obviously you go to the next level where it's like well is Dr. Wolf to blame for you know because this was essentially his idea that yeah. they were trying to hide these weapons of mass destruction on a on a lorry basically basically just trying to evade capture and it, it just sounds ridiculous me saying it but this was <laughs> actual evidence presented by Colin Powell to the UN Security Council in um, I think it was either in 2002 2003 or in the in the run up to war yeah so yeah and and then the idea is is that Schutz who was the the BND director the, the person who was head of the security services when it, they found out that this information was false he didn't tell any of the allies because it would accumulate him so there are so many yeah different levels of blame that can be attributed to everyone I don't know if the film ever really like comes down hard on someone in particular but I guess everyone has sort of shaped this complete fiasco, which has led to, yeah, to an illegal war. It's, it's almost like an ugly culture within geopolitics and an ugly culture within the intelligence services across the planet, especially in the wake of something like 9-11, which just makes everything <laughs> so much worse and just plays into this kind of really, like, nasty behaviour. But... Yeah, the, the why of why people lied and what kind of environment you create when do go down this, this path of, of lying about this, this stuff is really kind of the examination. Dr. Wolf, like, wants to believe in these WMDs, as you said, because he was pulled out of Iraq, he feels, like, too soon, and that he, he, he feels like he knows he's got to prove that... There, there are biological weapons and weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And so that's what suckers him in to wanting to believe Rafid. Like, he, he, he is sceptical of him. But then also, at the end of the day, they get suckered into the lie because he wants to believe in it. Or you do have, like, people like Schatz that are going along with the lie because it's to do with politics and also their own career uh you don't want to end up looking like a a mug in front of the americans then also then the cia agent leslie wants to believe because 9-11 was so devastating so kind of professionally but she also takes it very she took it very personally so and i think it's established that she had she knew people that died in the yeah she did so it's this it so she is out for blood she wants vengeance and she believes that Saddam is part of this axis of evil so it's all about the lengths we go to to believe that a course of action is right and that's very disturbing Mm. (laughs) in politics Uh, and that's no more true than today with like Trump and and Brexit or what's left of, of Trump anyway yeah I guess maybe that's why they decided to make this film now because you know, we've lived in an age of like of the post-truth world, mm. where actually people don't always want facts; they want feelings. They respond, or they have responded to politicians that are about feelings rather than than facts, and and that's obviously quite a dangerous culture to to be in, really. And we've seen some, yeah, really insidious events happen because of that. Um, Without going off too much on a tangent, I would lay the blame for. For 2016, you know, Trump and Brexit. The rise of populism. The rise of populism, 
partly at the foot of the Iraq war. I mean, it's not the first time that politicians have ever lied, or the first time America or the, or the West has gone to war based on a lie. But Iraq was something that really stuck in people's minds. They, they were lied to and betrayed to by the political class who were, who were picking their own kind of alternative facts. I think the electorate thought, well, why shouldn't we? You know, why shouldn't we if it's all just lies anyway? Also, it was they felt powerless because whether they march in their millions, which they did against this thing, politicians just didn't listen. Uh, even though it was so patently obvious to everyone how bullshit this was, there was nothing they could do to stop it. So again, that all plays into this kind of... It, it was a re, It's a really deep scar, I think, in the political consciousness for everyone and did contribute to this... This and all this feeling that this was also part of the establishment that had done this as well, so that needed taking down a notch as well. Um, I mean, I I remember hearing Iraq mentioned once on Question Time in a in a debate about Brexit, and these two things are, are completely different and separated by different times and different administrations. But it just shows how much it rocked public confidence in the system and made politics less trustworthy. Yeah, there's a podcast currently going on again. We should, should we should really get back to the film, but there's a podcast being made at the moment called uh, "The Fault Line: Blair Butch in Iraq" uh, by David Dimbleby, and uh, he talks about that. That was his justification for making that documentary because he says actually the world we live in now has been shaped um, and has been affected by the events of the war on terror and the invasion of the Middle East by Allied forces during that time. Um, and actually, episode five is about curveball. So, um, yeah, if you wanted extra material or extra reading, then yeah, that's definitely a podcast to listen to. But I think it's interesting you say about like the powerlessness of individuals because I felt and and this was just on like a first viewing that there were lots of shots of individuals like up against this really towering, like overbearing architecture. Yeah, and I wondered whether that was a bit of a comment on how hard it is for like an individual to to make a difference in this in the in the secret service world like how that when a, a country or when a government decides to do something terrible like invade it's so difficult to to turn that tide i don't know whether that yeah. was like a, that was a symbolism with, perhaps, or perhaps even kind of not just the architecture exactly but the at the uh, towards the end dr wolf is literally climbing up a snowy mountain climbing up a mountain yeah. to try and stop this thing from continuing yeah. perhaps that kind of metaphor is a bit of the the feeling that a lot of people have with, with with something like Iraq yeah that's a good connotation and like I also think as well the film's a bit about hubris it's about yeah I guess it's about people making mistakes and not really admitting to them which again is something that we see now in politics really there is just that fear of being wrong and mm. you know and, and saving face in a way because essentially, like when the BND find out that Rafi has lied to them, Shatz, the, the the head of the BND who goes on to get promotion, doesn't tell the 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 Allied forces or other governments about it, and this is what leads to the CIA basically trying to get a hold of Rafi and get on paper exactly, and you know get almost like the the information relayed in two thousand and three, just so that they've got that sort of fresh justification for for going to all, which which they do get, but. It's kind of Dr. Wolf who suffers because he's the one that's humiliated. He's the one that's sacked. And for the, when that does happen, he does go on this personal quest of redemption. Mm. And that's kind of why... I guess that's why we, we become a bit attached to him in a way. Uh, because actually, like, he's the only one in this film with, like, trying to trying to have that, that clear conscience and trying to, to right the wrongs, really. And trying yeah. to get the, the truth out there. Because you get the sense, like, even from the beginning that he is a person that is... A bit of a liar, like from the, in the beginning when he's having the affair, he sort of lies about having a wife because he wanted. To, he felt that that would make him more attractive because he feels like then people would, or it would be a way of him entering into a no strings relationship. If someone thought that they were, he was married to someone, yeah. you know, it's quite a, a nasty way of trying to get someone into bed, really. Uh, but then this lie he's not happy with, which is funny because then everyone else is quite happy with this lie after one point, including Rafid and their kind of relationship, which is which which does sort of develop into a real friendship after a little while. Or well, it's, it, I, I guess it does. I, I kind of think I mean, I, I for Rafid it is. It's it's unclear how much Wolf really 
feels like a kinship with him. Yeah, and I wonder why that's why he believes him initially. Why he does believe that he he is who he says he is because they start to grow this relationship together. Rafid starts to kind of want to get away from this lie, but only when he becomes kind of terrified at the the size of it when he realized because all he was trying to do was get a green card. All he wanted to do was just get into uh, a western country that was safe for him and his family. But <laughs> you know, when he starts to realize that that his lie could be part of a a web to to get rid of Saddam, that like starts to terrify him. That's actually quite a good like moment in the film where he he he's starting to realise this. Like the uh, CIA agent says to him, like, how would you feel about getting rid of Saddam? And he can't comprehend it. He never really thought that his lie was going to be used for this. He just says, well, no, no, Saddam's in Saddam's in charge. And he says, no, but but why though? What what if we got rid of him? It's like, well, you you can't. So that Saddam's in charge. I mean, perhaps that's also hinting at this thing of like how unprepared the West was going into Iraq. They didn't understand that destabilizing a country like Iraq is difficult because people can't comprehend not having this dictator in charge. And that's one of the problems with trying to bring democracy by force to a lot of these places. They're completely unprepared for it. Another aspect of the film I really liked was the mundanity of the work of the Secret Services. Yeah. The portrayed because almost every scene has a bit of a diluted tone to it. Because essentially most of the work that Dr. Wolf and his colleagues are doing is, is information gathering. So there is this, like, there's just something that's really uninspiring about that. And I think within the first few scenes when Dr. Wolf is back in Germany, they, there is this kind of reference to James Bond. And it's kind of yeah. like, and it just couldn't be. It just it couldn't be a world further apart from it. it. It really is sort of like quite, quite mundane. And in a film full of like baseless information, they are trying to give a bit of truth to to the actual world and operation that um, a lot of like the secret services within different different countries take part in. The closest to a gadget they have is a TV coming out of the wall, quite an ancient looking <laughs> TV and VCR that. Can't be operated by any of the actual spies in the room, but can only be operated by the secretary, who's the only one that knows how to use the TV properly. Yeah, it's just all this like just really boring and dull bureaucracy that these these characters inhabit. I mean, the buildings all look like they they haven't been updated since before the fall of the Berlin Wall. <laughs> so it feels like they're living in quite an archaic environment, the kind of place where a bad culture does just fester because there are no new ideas. Yeah, it's just all these middle-aged grey men who yeah. kind of like need it, who, where like everything is just, including them, probably need, need an update. I, I actually like some of the more slapsticky bits. I thought they were quite funny. Yeah, I didn't really. I, I, I kind of felt it's just not quite funny enough. Like yeah. it, it feels, it, it wants to be a satire with some like some very dry lines within it, but... Then there's this big sort of slapstick scene with um, Rafid and Dr. Wolf escaping on a sled down that mountain that you um, you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And it just felt like, oh, this is like... It's kind of like they started the film trying to, yeah, trying to, trying to make this kind of quite clever and witty take on the events leading up to the Iraq war. And like halfway through, they were like, no, we need to be... We need to like elevate this film a little bit yeah. and let's, let's throw some more broad comedy into it. I th- I, you're right. I think it could have been funnier, but I liked little elements of it. But for a political comedy, it didn't make me laugh all the way through. I mean, perhaps some bits are lost in translation. I mean, it is about half in English, half in German. The, the thing is, the actual farcical stuff that happens in it actually end up being kind of a bit more serious, or the bit taken like a bit more serious, where they're making more of a serious political point. So all they have left is the more like silly bits. But it never gets too crazy. But again, yeah, I think it could have been. I, I think it did make me laugh, but I agree. I think it could have been funnier. Yeah, so I think overall, really, to sort of yeah, to give it an overview, I'm not sure the film was ever like funny enough, and definitely not to be called a satire. Really, it's more of a dramedy with some sort of bizarre slapstick moments thrown in. Doctor Wolf, I think, is sometimes used as a tool for comedy with his physique or sort of desperation in trying to find the truth. I mean, obviously, desperation I think is a big part of comedy, and um, and they you know they utilise him quite well with with that. But there is this sort of depressing and tragic tone. That the film holds throughout, and the events are never portrayed in over in the events are never portrayed in like an over the top way, which is good because that yeah again that sort of matches the tone. 
Um, but it's kind of a shame the full title is like Curveball a True Story, unfortunately, because I kind of feel like it would have been better as a documentary. I think it would have had more of an impact and it kind of felt like they wanted to make a film about Rafi. They wanted to make a film about that source and what happened to him. But they've kind of put all these other like events around it. But yeah, maybe that was kind of intentional because the subject of the film is like the power of baseless information. And so therefore there's kind of like a slight irony to that, that a lot of the events they have are, are made up. But I guess like Sebastian Bloomberg's central performance really stands out for me. Like I think it's just a difficult part to play. And I think, yeah, he's got to match dialogue with some yes, yeah, fairly like broad slapstick moments and he does that very well. And I think there's like um there's a purity about him. And I really liked liked the idea of his sort of quest for redemption. But yeah, I felt there was probably like more wrong with this film than right. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I mean, overall, I think that's my problem with Curveball, is that it's another political comedy, but it kind of is better more as, like, a centrepiece. It's more of a, it's more of a discussion topic. Like, it's, it, it's very interesting, a subject matter, but it's not much fresher than any other political satire that's been out there. I'd only say seek it out if you're interested in Iraq and politics, uh, it's not giving a different spin on the political satire. It's not making something that was previously inaccessible accessible. It just kind of is a pretty solid stab at a story that formed part of the fabric of the Iraq war. And that was definitely interesting for me and you. I don't know if it's going to be worth it for everyone. Uh, there was actually, I was just going to say, a documentary actually made about um, curveball called War of Lies. So if you are seeking a documentary, then that would be something you could. Oh watch. right, okay. So that's why they've made this because they've already got <laughs> there. Okay, that's fair enough. I take that. I take that criticism back. It's a proven fake. You know it's not true. Truth doesn't matter. And that gives you the right to f- to twist the fact. We make the facts. <laughs> so if you like this, then you should watch 2009's In the Loop. An extension of Armando Iannucci's seminal TV show, The Thick of It, In the Loop continues the gleefully foul-mouthed mockery of Westminster's chaotic and mostly futile spinning of reality onto the international stage. Simon Forster, Tom Hollander, is a cabinet minister who finds himself in hot water after misspeaking and unwittingly finding himself arguing to go to war, or maybe not going to war, in the Middle East. Seeking international support, politicians on both sides in the United States want to use Forster as a pawn to help them with their goals. But no one's quite counted on the caustic, profane steam train in the form of Malcolm Tucker, Peter Capaldi, the Prime Minister's Director of Communications slash Enforcer, who's ruthlessly trying his best to keep the UK government on the winning side. Come on, Malcolm, he asked me for a, for a, for a personal opinion. But why didn't you say? I mean, he asked you, fuck, of course that explains it. Yeah. See if he'd asked you to fucking black up, or to give him your PIN number, or to, to shit yourself. Would you have done that as well? I would have blacked up, because yeah. it was radio, nobody would have known. Very good, yeah. Well, war is basically unforeseeable, isn't it? That is not our line. Walk the fucking line. Look, we've got Karen Clark over from Washington today. OK. We've got enough fucking Pentagon goons here to stage a fucking coup d'etat. Minister, uh, Not this... the time, love. I'm busy. Fuck off. This is Toby. Toby, hi. Glad you could make it. Yes. It's a bit of an odd morning here. Yes, so Welcome to the madhouse. I apologise for Malcolm. Don't apologise for me. Apologise for yourself. Did I not just tell you to fuck off and yet you're still here? It's true, I am, yes, still here. Hi, fittest boy, lesson one. I tell you to fuck off, what do you do? F off. You'll go far. Well, fuck off. Although it's rarely touted as realistic, In the Loop and its TV-based cousin, The Thick of It, are some of the most highly acclaimed pieces of British political satire in decades. Time capsuling the political mood of New Labour, the Iraq War, and the coalition government in the early noughties and tens. Essentially, if you're looking for political satire, this is always where I'd send you. In the Loop runs a perfect line between real and something far more over the top. Backroom dealings, manipulating the media and chopping and changing the facts to suit your own purposes are definitely in the DNA of politics, but probably not in quite the bombastic schoolyard bully approach, unless of course you're working for Pretty Patel. The foul language and bad behaviour of everyone is entertaining because it's juvenile, but it's also at the core of the satire itself, 
The people who are supposed to be selflessly and nobly running our society with our best interests at heart aren't meant to be behaving like kids in a playground, but that's often what it seems like from the outside, and In The Loop takes that just one step further. But you also can't help but have your own juvenile giggle watching quite how deliciously foul the language is, from lubricated horse cock to Humpty Numpty sitting on a wall like some clueless egg cunt. It's, as Alan Partridge would say, top swearing. But on the question of war and truth, what Curveball is about, well, In The Loop is about spin, making whatever's happening in the world sound like it's in your favour and doing whatever it takes to have a reasonable argument or plausible deniability. Whatever will keep you on side of public opinion, in this case, on the war. What you need to spin and how far you need to spin it gets further and further and uglier and uglier as the film goes on, climaxing in no one getting what they want and everyone going too far. Like Curveball, who's to blame could be one person, but could be everyone too. It's a bad culture where in the end, who's first over the finish line matters a lot more than how you got there. It's more consistently funny than Curveball, although based more on a mood than any true event, though the sexing up of the Iraq war dossier is clearly an inspiration. But if you want a funny, sharp slice of the omni-shambles that is the Iraq war, In The Loop is perfect. Yeah, I think it's, as you say, like I think it's like a really good times capsule of the politics that we were going through at the time, really. I think the characters are so good. I mean, obviously, every good comedy has great characters. Yeah. And whether that's from, yeah, Peter Capaldi and his, you know, his, like, sort of spin merchant, um, Malcolm Tucker, or to James Gandolfini's General. Like, the way that they, all these kind of very grotesque characters, like, operate within Westminster and then Washington, it just really does make for, like, great entertainment. It really does. And that's another great thing as well, actually, the the US actors and the, some of the new characters. Because the, the TV show never went to America, but this does. And so you have to have American characters. Now, often, a lot is made of how British comedy doesn't translate well to America, but all the um, Americans in it do so well with, with something that does feel very quintessentially British, and none more so than James Gandolfini, who just weirdly seems to perfectly fit in with the script. Something about his performance is like, I could see this person and this character being on the TV version for several series or maybe some guest spots on some episodes. And that goes for kind of everyone in the, in the, in the cast. Yeah, and I think it's really trying to represent how politics might sometimes look like everything's really well streamlined and organised, but actually behind the scenes, it's just absolute chaos. Yeah. And these politicians and their special advisors have very little information mm. and they often have to make these huge decisions that will affect people's lives around the world just very quickly. It's very true. It still makes me cackle with laughter. It's still a really, really funny film, which is really, really great after over 10 years now and for a film that's so much of its time in trying to take a moment and be a, a and is a bit of a zeitgeist it's really a great testament to it that it still makes me makes me laugh yeah actually and I think part of the reason that is because a lot of it is quite high drama like every single scene it feels like there's some sort of action or there's yeah some sort of high intensity towards it so mm. that energy just is sort of very funny yeah that's really true If you didn't like Curveball, then maybe you're in the mood for a political story free of humour or levity. Taxi to the Dark Side from 2007 is what you should turn to as it's a documentary made about the war on terror and the Allied invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. Perhaps a bit of a departure, however it's a similar subject matter to Curveball, and while that film focuses on the cause, this focuses on the effect. Directed and narrated by Alex Gibney, Taxi to the Dark Side is more about the torture and interrogation of civilians in the Middle East rather than the lies and bureaucracy told by politicians and Secret Service operatives. One of the things we know about torture is that someone who is tortured will tell his interrogator what he thinks the interrogator wants to hear. The moment Al Libby was uh, waterboarded, he started blurting things out. Well, rather than questioning what he was saying and going into it in detail to see if what he was saying could be corroborated, they immediately stopped and ran off to report what Al Libby had said and ended the torture. 
and bang, it gets up to the highest decision makers, and all of a sudden, Colin Powell is told, hey, you don't have to worry uh, about your doubts anymore because we've just gotten confirmation that there were contacts between al-Qaeda and Baghdad. In February 2003, then-Secretary of State Colin Powell went before the United Nations to make the case for the war in Iraq. I can trace the story of a senior terrorist operative telling how Iraq provided training in these weapons to al-Qaeda. Fortunately, this operative is now detained, and he has told his story. A year later, the CIA branded al-Libi a fabricator, rescinded all the intelligence reports with that information in it. So in other words, you will get information, but you'll get false information. I think Colin Powell has said that was the most embarrassing day of his entire life. The main thread of the story focuses on Dilawar, a local Afghan taxi driver who was taken to Bagram Detention Center in 2002, where within days he died of the injuries that American soldiers inflicted upon him. Procedures used within Afghanistan were also used in Iraq, at Abu Ghraib, which was the most notorious base for the murder and abuse of detainees. The documentary gathers together journalists, human rights lawyers, and even soldiers who were complicit in torture. These methods were based on terminology and research that the CIA had handed down to the army which had been approved by high-ranking politicians within the George Bush administration. The film won the Academy Award for Best Documentary that year, and its release was in conjunction with Iraq becoming even more violent as sectarian clashes started to rise within that period. The war had been deeply unpopular across the world, and events in Taxi to the Dark Side underlined how corrupt and broken the political machine can be, not just in preparation for conflict, but on the battlefield as well. Yeah, um, I don't think I've seen this Taxis of the Dark Side all the way through, but Alex Gibney is a, is a brilliant documentary maker, and the story that he covers in it, the bits I've seen, is just so shocking, so harrowing, so depressing. The governments in the West can do stuff like this and just get away with it. Yeah, um, Gibney's sort of the documentarian of his era, really. I mean, he's made stuff on Steve Jobs, um, on Scientology, Lance Armstrong, um, Julian Assange in uh, We Steal Secrets, the story of WikiLeaks, which is my personal favourite documentary that he's made. And he recently made uh, Citizen K from 2019 about a Russian dissident, uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky. So yeah, he's obviously the like a master of the art, and and yeah, the story that he tells here is just so enthralling. But as you say, like really, really depressing. I think with Gibney documentaries, there's like an honesty and a clarity about each interview, yeah, and that's what makes Taxi to the Dark Side so engrossing. Even with soldiers who are part of these heinous acts, you start to understand why such terrible things happened in in Abu Ghraib and other detection centres. It's a massive departure from from Curveball and you know it's a completely different form in terms of a documentary but I think it's a really important part of the Iraq war and why about 20 years later now people still talk about it with you know with such humiliation almost in a way just because of, of the things that happened before during and after when um, the Allied forces went to went to war. Yeah it's a really ugly story but a really vital story as well. It's, it's interesting because ultimately Curveball is about the pursuit of truth and this is a, a documentary, really. So this is the idea of this is meant to be representing something that, that is, isn't fictional. Uh, even though, of course, there's the debate about, you know, what, you know to, yeah. to, what, to what extent the do- documents are edited. That's a very big topic. But the idea is that it's presenting a kind of non-fiction subject. But, I mean, is there a kind of cover-up? I mean, I know that torture was... Torture was used, and the lengths to which torture was used was uh, definitely subject to some of the the spinning of the United States. But was there a cover up? Was there still a playing with with truth and and what was really going on? There wasn't really a cover up. But what the documentary is really good at is it shows how torture was enabled within like Iraq and Afghanistan during that time period mm. and what it is is more about like the chain of command so the spine of the US armed forces is is that chain of command and what starts at the top like drops like a rock I mean I'm basically basically almost quoting like um, I think it was the general counsel to the navy within the documentary there was also this sort of fog of ambiguity there was this framework set out 
And I think even one of the soldiers says, like, as long as you didn't physically beat them up, you could do literally anything else to them to, yeah, to, to get information out of them. By the end of the documentary, I remember, like, I think Alex Gibney, he talks about his dad, and his dad had these values of tolerance and an understanding how to treat other people. And I think what the Iraq War did is that it showed how a country like the United States and, and other other allied forces, the way they, you know, they could just completely distort that. And you had these sort of like pillars of decency that people think they have in the West. And then when you see like soldiers under the tutelage or under the banner of these politicians and the army, they just completely ruined those those ideas and principles. It's interesting because it's what you're talking about is a uh, another ugly culture in in an institution similar to curveball but instead of a a culture of lies it was like a culture of violence that's a really good way to link the two and yeah again it just shows like another really murky part of of the war on terror thank you so much for listening to cellcast you can find and subscribe to us on spotify itunes apple podcasts and soundcloud as cellcast and come follow us on Twitter at Cell Magazine and like us on Facebook.com forward slash Cell Magazine.